dizzy, couldn't see properly, and was attempting to change some batteries in a, a remote controller. And I kept dropping them. My infant was just lying on the floor on a little baby mat at the time. And I remember seeing multiple images of him thinking, this is not normal. This is not right. But my sleep deprivation was so bad at that point that I really did think I was just experiencing some unpleasant side effects of that extreme sleep deprivation. And they decided to put me through a CT and we did a contrast CT. And that contrast CT showed some abnormalities on my brain. Over the course of about four hours, I was also then put through some memory testing, some you know standard recall and neurological testing. My balance was fine. My vision was fine. I had not lost any sensation or movement. I had not lost any consciousness. So all of those more traditional, I didn't have a drooping face, all of those more traditional signs were not occurring at that point. I was discharged from the ED that night and, and I shouldn't have been. And that was a really important juncture in my story because I have had a fortunate outcome, but for somebody else, it could have turned out to be very different. And young stroke is so easily misdiagnosed, particularly when patients do not present with those more traditional symptoms. Again, it comes back to time, time and listening and patience. Patience is always important. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. PFO, commonly known as a hole in the heart, is prevalent in about a quarter of the population. For most people, it'll go entirely unnoticed, but for some, it can result in clots travelling from the heart to the brain, resulting in a stroke. In England and Scotland, stroke survivors between the ages of 18 and 60 who have PFO, which has been identified as a possible cause of their stroke, can have an operation to close the hole. In Wales and Northern Ireland, there are fewer age restrictions for the operation. In this episode, we hear from Carly Eels from Sydney, who suffered a stroke at the age of 40. I'm the mother of two boys, so my life is very busy and active. I spend a lot of time standing on the sidelines of football fields and cricket pitches. So it's an exciting house with two boys. My oldest boy is nearly 11, so he was nine-ish when I stroked. And my youngest boy was only eight months old. So I was on maternity leave and had a very little baby at home when I had a stroke. Prior to that, generally healthy, but I've had a few ups and downs over the years. I have a couple of autoimmune diseases which are prevalent in my family. Mine are celiac disease and ulcerative colitis. So neither of them are severe. Both are mild and moderate and celiac disease is well under control, but the colitis does flare up every so often and 2020 is not a, not a good year for that. It's a stressful year. <laughs> but those are the two main things. I also suffer from endometriosis and both of my boys are IVF babies due to infertility with endometriosis. They're chronic problems and they're long-term and ongoing problems, but they're problems that with the right specialists and practitioners can be well-managed. At the time, I did not know what was happening. I wasn't very familiar with FAST and any of the signs of stroke. I think like a lot of young people, I thought stroke was something that happened to older individuals. My youngest child at the time had had a, a long period, six plus months of terrible reflux. And for parents out there with reflux babies, it's 
a very difficult time. It can be one where you don't get a lot of sleep. And my husband and I were very, very sleep deprived. I woke up one morning and uh, was dizzy, couldn't see properly, and was attempting to change some batteries in a, a remote controller. And I kept dropping them. My infant was just lying on the floor on a little baby mat at the time. And I remember seeing multiple images of him thinking, this is not normal. This is not right. But my sleep deprivation was so bad at that point that I really did think I was just experiencing some unpleasant side effects of that extreme sleep deprivation. And I decided to lie down and have a sleep while my little one was sleeping and said to myself, if I woke up feeling strange or if I woke up feeling worse, then I know that something was not, was not good. So I had a sleep that morning and I woke up with my vision back to normal and I just had a little niggling headache and I wasn't feeling great, but I hadn't been feeling great for many weeks. So that is the, that's the moment of the stroke and I had no idea that I was stroking. What happened after that was over the course of about 24 hours, the headache worsened and I started to feel very anxious and nauseous. I called my general practitioner, which in Australia is your, your, your doctor that you see for regular you know, family ma- management, family medicine. And I said to her that I really wasn't feeling very well. And we have a close relationship having managed my other chronic conditions for a number of years. And she said to me that if I started to, or if I continued to feel worse, that I should present to the emergency department. So I stroked on a Thursday morning and I spoke to her on a Friday morning and I presented to the emergency department at 4 p.m. on a Friday. And I don't know what it is like in other major cities of the world, but going to a emergency department in a big city on a Friday evening is pretty much the worst time to turn up. Um, it, yeah, it's ex- extremely hectic. And I went in and spoke with the, the doctors. They, they actually got me through pretty quickly. And I explained what had happened. And they decided to put me through a CT. And we did a contrast CT. And that contrast CT showed some abnormalities on my brain. Over the course of about four hours, I was also then put through some memory testing, some, you know, standard recall and neurological testing. My balance was fine. My vision was fine. I had not lost any sensation or movement. I had not lost any consciousness. So all of those more traditional, I didn't have a drooping face all of those more traditional signs were not occurring at that point. But my CT did show abnormalities. Despite the result of the scan, doctors sent Carly home. I was discharged from the ED that night and and I shouldn't have been. And that was a really important juncture in my story because I have had a fortunate outcome, but for somebody else, it could have turned out to be very different. And young stroke is so easily misdiagnosed, particularly when patients do not present with those more traditional symptoms. And I was discharged with a letter that said, I am showing abnormalities on the brain and that I need to have an outpatient MRI at some point in the next couple of weeks, no real urgency, and that it could be MS or vasculitis. So it was pretty terrifying to be discharged with a letter with those words written on it. And that was a Friday night. I came home and over the course of the next 48 hours, although I was not fully aware of it, my speech started to change. 
And one of my closest girlfriends said to me subsequently, you know, after diagnosis, she said, oh, it just dawned on me. I didn't tell you, but when you were text messaging me and we were WhatsApping and chatting over that weekend, you were missing words and your grammar was off. And I'm a communications practitioner. That is my profession. I write and speak for a living. And for me and for her, obviously, that was a red flag. She didn't think to say anything at the time, but it was clear that I was starting to experience some other signs. By the Sunday night, I I was putting my children in the bath and I was running the bathtub and realized that I could not feel the hot water properly on my right arm. And I said to my husband, this is not right. Something's really wrong. So first thing the next morning, I probably should have gone to the emergency department again at that point. It's funny. I still had no thought of stroke, nor was stroke even suggested on the Friday evening when I was there. So I've also consciously chosen not to Dr. Google anything because the last thing you want to do is Google vasculitis. It's a terrifying disease. So I hopped into bed that night and when I got up in the morning, it had not improved, it had worsened. So I went straight back and had the MRI done at that point. I was then escorted straight from the MRI into the hospital and then spent eight days on a neuro ward while the doctors were trying to figure out what caused my stroke. So from stroke to admission, four days. And my signs, my my deficiencies came on slowly over that period. They were not sudden. By the third or fourth day of being uh, on the ward, my speech was really affected. The damage that I received was in the front left lobe, front left part of the brain where speech and numeracy resides. And so I'm very fortunate because this wasn't discovered for many, many weeks actually, but I had a stroke as a result of, of a patent for a monovale PFO defect in my heart. And The way the clots formed in my heart meant that I had a shower of lots of mini clots hit my brain, both both hemispheres. And in the stroke world, that is actually a good outcome as opposed to having one large major clot hit the brain, causing a lot more damage. The most amount of brain tissue I've lost is about 2.5 by 1.5 centimetres in that front left. And that's not a huge amount of tissue to lose. But what was interesting is that when I was first admitted, it took eight days essentially to figure out that the PFO was possibly what the cause was. We went through the whole process of elimination. That's an interesting thing for stroke patients who have no real obvious cause. And I've subsequently figured out that Looking at cardiac causes for young stroke is an area that needs to be further explored or at least looked at as being a potential cause of stroke. And I don't know what the statistics are in other parts of the world, but in Australia, 40%, up to 40% of young stroke under the age of 50 is caused by PFO. There are lots of people listening and lots of people you've spoken with over the years who have have had PFO strokes. Whilst no specialist can ever say this, I had I was coming off the back of months and months and months of sleep deprivation, and sleep deprivation is a known cause of of blood clots. So, all of those factors considered, I will never have a concrete answer, which is so much. Uh, this is a reality for so many stroke patients, young stroke in particular not having the answers is such a terrifying space to be in. 
because answers give us comfort and answers give us control. (laughs) And without answers, we don't always have that comfort and control we need. After her second stay in hospital, Carly fell through the cracks in the stroke aftercare system. I was discharged as a a high-functioning stroke survivor, and that is absolutely the case. But I fell into a a category which is a really underserviced category in Australia, and that is young stroke with the ability to function, but certainly facing what is inevitably going to be a period of recovery. And I don't want this to reflect terribly on on the Australian public health system, but I really did fall through the gaps and discharged without a plan, discharged not being told that things can and and will get a lot worse, which they did. And what happened after my discharge was what happens to so many stroke survivors. The fatigue set in and it was just debilitating and completely turned my life upside down and my family's life upside down. And then there are a couple of other things that I think are not discussed as widely as they need to be, particularly when you look at the increase in stroke in young young women. Unfortunately, it's a space where, where stroke is on the rise. Um, there's some great work being done out of the University of Melbourne research work into why women aged 30 to 50 are stroking more frequently than other uh, segments of the population. But, for example, putting uh, young reproductive women on blood thinning regimes is a is a really tricky thing because that is not blood thinners and, and periods are not a good combination. So the knock-on effect of drug management, uh, rehabilitation, all of the things that individuals have to manage post-stroke is an extremely daunting reality. And I had to source a lot of my help myself Thankfully, I mentioned my GP earlier. She's amazing and she did help me a lot. But I think globally, it sounds from what I can understand, it sounds as if the young stroke cohort really needs more support with rehabilitation. Having recently given birth, Carly had to work through her stroke recovery, all the while living with two autoimmune disorders. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Carly talks about getting involved in patient advocacy. I had decided that I needed to try and do something to help some of these stroke patients because the lack of advocacy on their behalf, unless their family members were present, was just something that was so disturbing to watch because I was conscious, present, able to articulate myself. I could move around and so many of these other stroke survivors and patients could not. And she gives her advice to stroke survivors and their families. Time is your best friend. And while the early stages of stroke recovery seem like they may have no end to it, the brain is a phenomenal organ. Let's hear how the after effects of Carly's stroke have changed over time. It's that bizarre, winding, twisting world of stroke recovery. Interestingly enough, just next week, I'm going to be doing my first five-day work week for the first time in over two years because I was on maternity leave when I stroked. So I'd had you know, my mat leave and had the time off work for maternity leave and then had 
been pregnant prior to that. So I have slowly been building back up to full-time work. But the first six months were particularly hard. I was scheduled to return to work when my son was 12 months old, which would have been in the October of 2018. I did not get back to work until the December and I went back one day a week. And I remember spending the first day sitting in front of my computer and my brain just being so overwhelmed by the sensory, the stimulation. I was unable to focus on the screen. I The lights felt like they were just pounding and beaming through my eyes and the noise, it, it, the sensory overload is so intense. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to be able to work again. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. I can't look at this computer screen. Thankfully, I have an incredibly supportive employer and I was very quick to put my hand up and say, I don't know how this is going to work or if it's going to work. So at that point, we were in you know the middle of Aussie summer. And so that's our kind of downtime and, and quieter period. And a lot of businesses uh, don't shut down, but you know, it's like European July, August, it tends to get a bit quieter on the work front. So I decided just to take a little bit more time over that first Christmas period after my stroke to see how I felt. And that extra rest did help throughout the summer. And I was able to come back at two days a week in January. And then I picked up a third day in March 2019. And I picked up a fourth day in July 2019. So I've been working four days a week since for a year. But I've really needed that fifth day off to rest and recover and do to do a lot of the you know, family commitments and, and other things and exercising and trying to maintain my well-being that I can't fit in in a normal day because there are nights where I still need to get into bed at 8.30 or 8 o'clock and go to sleep because because I'm that tired. But it's it's inconsistent now. And a lot of it has to do with management of my, of my other problems and, and how they're doing. If I'm generally well, I find that I'm certainly more robust. The tiredness, it's a tiredness you can't possibly explain to somebody unless you experience it. You think you, you, think you know what tired is, <laughs> but then to have a neurological brain injury or a cardiac injury, you are just tired to the point for a lot of people where you can't get out of bed. I had the PFO closed in the August of 2018, so I came under the care of a, a stroke neurologist who is an outstanding man who I think probably dreams MRIs. <laughs> he took one look at my MRI in, in our first outpatient consultation. I had not seen him when I was on the ward. He wasn't there at that time. And the theory from the doctors was originally that I had possibly had a series of mini strokes over a period of time and hadn't realized they were happening, which explained why I had multiple points on both hemispheres. And he said, no, this is one incident. This has all happened at once. I can tell by the brightness of the tissue damage that's reflected on the MRI. You've had a centralized stroke. You've had a cardiac stroke it is the PFO that has caused this. And so once I finally had somebody experienced enough to look at my MRI and figure out what was going on, I felt a sense of relief then that we could move towards some course of action. Interestingly enough, the hospital in Sydney that discharged me from the ED opened up a case to look into why that happened. And I was a very willing and happy partner in that review 
because we don't want this to happen to anybody else. So we looked at the processes in the ED uh, and I have since partnered more with that particular hospital coming in to talk to nursing staff and other clinicians just to really elevate the young stroke awareness messages that need to be there. And young stroke patients are so different to what is a typical elderly stroke patient on a neuro ward. And, you know, I noticed within a matter of minutes of being on the ward that I was on, I was the youngest person in the room, shared room, probably by 30, 40 years. (laughs) And by day three of being on the ward, I had decided that I needed to try and do something to help some of these stroke patients because the lack of advocacy on their behalf unless their family members were present was just something that was so disturbing to watch because I was conscious, present, able to articulate myself. I could move around and so many of these other stroke survivors and patients could not. So I started to kind of move around the ward and get to know some of the elderly patients there. And it's hard when those teams of doctors are running through, doing their rounds, trying to whip through all the list of 100 things that they need to go through. And I have so much admiration for clinicians. They have to cover such incredible territory to take care of their patients. But it's just that that, that whole patient advocacy component, particularly for neuropatients, is so important because you so often cannot communicate. And when you can't communicate, how can you advocate for yourself? It's a really difficult thing. Carly wants to help young stroke patients get more of a voice in their treatment. After going through that however many weeks of, oh my goodness, what has happened to me? (laughs) And wanting to stay far away from as much stroke information as I possibly can just to give myself a little bit of relief and to not be living a life of fear that it's so easy to just be consumed by the question of, is this going to happen to me again? And if it's going to happen to me again, is it going to be worse than it was the previous time? Once I'd become a little bit more comfortable with that, And it is time, it's time that allows that, that affords that. I started to realise how incredibly fortunate I am in this world and the stroke survivor world. And I also, when I became aware of a lot of the stroke support groups in Australia and and the models used here would be so very similar to lots of other countries, you know, industry bodies, industry groups, health groups, advocacy groups, patient groups, survivor groups, family groups, all of those types of communities, I realised that there's a real gap when it comes to the patient voice within the clinician world. And that's where I've decided to, and that's where I have been spending a lot of my time in the stroke world, is actually finding ways to connect with clinicians so that the clinical management of young stroke, and all stroke for that matter, is given the attention that it needs to be given, specifically the areas of communication, patient involvement, you know, explanations, the assessment of the whole patient picture. It's so critical to look at that whole patient and what he or she might be experiencing. I think patients, regardless of age and severity of stroke, need to be central to all aspects of clinical management. I think as the consumer patient world and the clinician worlds collide a little bit more, continue to collide, and 2020 is the perfect example of the pandemic that, that we're living through. We're all now educated on this virus. In the past, patient education is so very different when you didn't have tools and resources and 
and Dr. Google. I discovered quickly that the need to develop relationships with the individuals caring for me to facilitate the outcomes I needed were critical. And thanks to my job and my profession and my areas of studies, I have those skills, but so many people do not. And that is a space that needs a lot of development. And I want to say it's probably on a global picture, not just isolated to Australia. And she believes you should embrace your recovery time, however long it takes. Time is your best friend. And while the early stages of stroke recovery seem like they may have no end to it, the brain is a phenomenal organ. And the tissue that I have lost, I'm now speaking relatively normally. I've actually had a few speech problems during this conversation, but I can fudge over them so quickly now. (laughs) So most people listening to me, unless you know me very well, you probably won't notice that that it's happening, um, that I still experience some dysarthria and and word-finding problems. But that is something that has improved over time and the tissue that surrounds the tissue that I have lost is now doing that job in part. And we need to be more patient with ourselves to allow for recovery. And that's a hard thing when we live in a world where we are expected to, most a lot of us expect so much of ourselves and we run it, you know, 100 miles an hour. Slow down and be patient. Also, don't fear explaining, feeling like you need to explain yourself again and again and again, particularly to clinicians and in the medical world. It's okay to ask questions. Ask the hard questions. Ask the scary questions. Position yourself or your family or your advocates, whomever is helping you, as the partner to the clinician so that you can really drive your recovery and the outcome from that recovery and involve your supporters and, and, and help them advocate on your behalf if, if that's what you need. And for family and friends, that's a hard one because it's so hard to watch what has happened to you in, impact the loved ones around you. And for and I have experienced this, I still experience this now, incredible guilt some days that my two small children and my, my, my older boy had to and will have memory of seeing mummy hooked up to tubes and IVs and lying in bed, being able to not get out of bed. That's a scary thing for a child that will never leave his memory. He will always carry that. And for my husband and, and family and close friends, they dropped everything to help us. I say to my family and friends, of course, thank you, thank you, thank you time and time again. But if and when you need me, I will always be there. And I am grateful that that I have had the support around me that I have had, even if you don't always understand what is happening at that particular time. And my husband is very good at this. If I say to him, I need to go and lie down and I don't have a choice right now because if I don't go and lie down, I think I might fall over because that's how tired I feel or the fatigue is so bad that I'm experiencing. I still experience sensory problems, um, mostly attached to fatigue and I've learned to live with them. But as soon as I feel 
the early stages of some of those deficits starting to present themselves. I remove myself from the noise as best as I can. I try to isolate myself for some calm, quiet time in a dark room or in my bed. And even 15 minutes lying down is enough sometimes just for the brain to reset a little bit and to remove all of those noises that are causing the sensory problems. My husband is very respectful of that and he'll say to me, okay, you just go lie down. It's different for everybody. Some people feel much better when they exercise, so making sure that stroke survivors are given the opportunity to take care of all of their holistic, their well-being needs, exercising. Again, it comes back to time, time and listening and patience. Patience is always important. Although battling her own medical problems during recovery, Carly remains upbeat and positive and is putting all of her efforts into raising awareness of patient advocacy. Coming up in the next episode of Stroke Stories. I woke up feeling like where you slept on one side of your body for too long and there was that fuzzy pins and needles feeling. I just assumed that that's because I fell asleep and that's what happened. I slept on it too long or anything. I did get up and go to the toilet and I looked in the mirror on the right side of my face. I had a little bit of saliva and I thought that's weird. Like I didn't go to bed that long and I didn't think anything was wrong, but I did think something was different. Please do subscribe to Stroke Stories on your preferred provider and rate and comment on the episodes you hear to help us spread the word. And if you are a stroke survivor or you know of one and there is a story that you can share, please contact via Twitter or Instagram. Our DM. Please contact via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. <laughs>